Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, September the 20th, 2017, and this is episode 2089 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a Wednesday, that means it is interview day. It is also the last new podcast you will hear until I think it's the 2nd of October. I will be gone Thursday and Friday this week. All of next week to parts undisclosed in uh, some place where there's mountains and trees. That's as much specific as I'll be because I'm dedicating this time 100% to my wife. She deserves that with all the crap she deals with dealing with this redneck hippie duck farming podcaster uh, through the rest of the year. Anyway, we have a really timely interview today. Mike Sentex, who lives down just north of Houston, who was deeply involved with efforts that we did with CAC to help Hurricane Harvey uh, victims and you know was right in the middle of all the shit through the whole thing. He's going to be on today to tell us about that experience and what he's learned through it. So that is about as timely as the show can get, and it's a perfect one to do right before I go off on vacation. Before we uh, get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. That's right, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. And what can you get from the Berkey Guy? I, I know this might be a shocking thing, but the Berkey Guy sells Berkey water filtration systems. Um, we have owned a Berkey filter for, I guess, eight years now. It is the, the most foolproof and most economical solution to making sure your water is clean and safe to drink. And by the way, tastes great that I know of. You can learn more at Jeff's website, Directive 21, and the Berkey guy will not be able to just help you with Berkey water filtration systems, but other things for your prepping needs at the website, Directive, followed by the numbers 2 and 1, and then a dot and a com, Directive21.com. Next up today, Save Castle Royal, who I call the original survival podcast sponsor. Why? Because they sponsored us in our first full year of being on the air. So we were on the air for a half year in 08. In the winter of 2009, uh, I heard from Vic over at Save Castle, and he said, hey, we know you're still not that big, but we want to sponsor the show. What can we do? And I built the entire sponsorship program they've been running now for over eight years around Save Castle and, 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 and setting them up as the first sponsor. And they've stayed loyal to us for eight years, including making their discount membership program available for free with a lifetime membership to any member of the MSB. And let me tell you what just happened. They evaluated that program and they changed it from being $49 for a lifetime membership to $29 a year if you wanted to maintain it. But they still give it to you for free. That means you get a $29 a year membership for free as an MSB member for life in return for you know being an MSB member at 50 bucks, and then you get all the other discounts. That is a hell of a thing for a company to do to support our community and, and to make that exception for us when they made the change to their program. They just did that. They just made that change, and they said that, that basically the only way a person could even get a lifetime membership to SafeCastle now is through the MSB, and you, if you do that, you're getting it for free. That's a loyal sponsor, so when you need something for your preps, check them out. At safecastle.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was from history. We're up to the year 60 AD. It's a little bit longer of one today, but let's take a look at it. This is from David Verne. It's called Britain Explodes. 
Okay, I'm going to do my best with these names, and if I can't pronounce them right, I'll just make it up as I go along. Praticus, the, the, the king of the Essene tribe, died last year and left his territory, territory jointly to Rome and his wife, Boudicca, and his two daughters, daughters. This was supposed to keep the family in power as a client kingdom of Rome. However, Catus de Sanis, uh, the procreator or financial minister of the province, had other ideas. He announced that Rome didn't recognize the claims of women and annexed their territory. The Britons found this odd and saw it as perfectly natural for Boudicca to rule as queen after her husband's death. So she continued paying the standard tribute and ruling as if nothing had happened. Decanus sent several soldiers and slaves to Boudicca's village, and they ransacked the village and flogged Boudicca and raped her daughters. Decanus believed the issue was settled, little realizing he had just lit a fuse to a massive powder keg. Boudicca met in secret with other tribes. They agreed to a rebellion, electing Boudicca as their war queen. The governor, Satinus, was capturing, was campaigning in Wales when news reached him of the revolt. Caledonium was the first city to be attacked. After two days, the tribesmen burnt the city to the ground. The Ninth Hispania was marched to relieve the city, but it was too late, and was massacred with only the commander and some cavalry escaping. Sutinius reached Londonium and evacuated the city before Boudicca could reach it. She burnt Londonium to the ground and, and three other towns with reportedly 70 to 80,000 civilians built, being killed. Suetonius managed to gather 10,000 legionnaires from the four legions and chose a place where a road now known as Wadding Street passed through a narrow pass. The rebels arrived with an estimated 100,000 tribesmen and Boudicca gave a rousing speech saying... This was to be the Romans' last moment in Britain, and this battle would determine whether they would be free or slaves. Even though the Romans were outnumbered ten to one, almost no one could fight them in open battle. After the initial charge, the rebels broke and fled. When tribal armies moved, they brought all their families with them. These families were stationed on a hill behind the battlefield to watch the tribal victory. When the rebels fled, they got caught up in camp, and the Romans were able to kill many during the rout. The reported casualties were 80,000 Britons and 400 Romans. Boudicca drank poison to avoid capture, and the revolt was over. My take by David Verne. This will be the last revolt in southern Britain, and it was so fierce that Nero considered abandoning the island until reports came that the revolt was put down. The tribe's biggest disadvantage was their, was their army size because they didn't have the logistic systems in place to support a large army. Their tactics were also lacking. The only tactic the barbarians used was a fierce charge, and if you could hold against that charge like the Romans could they would begin to retreat and flee the battlefield. Yeah, so there's a lot there, isn't there? Um, I think the big issue is it never had to happen. This Boudicca chick was happy to continue to pay the tribute and do all the things that was agreed upon with, with Rome, and this one asshat, this one asshat governor stationed in, in, in Britain decided to screw with it. I wonder if he ever ended up with his throat cut by Nero or something like that. Because if I was Nero, I'd be pissed off about this. I really would. But who knows? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, guys, with that, if you like the show and the work that I do, the history segments, the education, the entertainment, all of it, consider joining the MSB today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members. You can learn all about the great benefits you get, like the discount membership to Safe Castle that we mentioned today, discounts to the other sponsor today, Berkey Guy. We have so many discounts, your membership will pay for itself. Again, all you got to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, or click the Members Support Brigade banner in the right-hand margin of the site. 
And remember, I do take cash, check, money order, cryptocurrency, barter, silver. I don't take gold because it's kind of hard to get down to a small enough amount of gold to pay for it. But if you want to do something with gold, we'll work something out, you know. It's up to you guys. I take just about any form of payment you can think of. And we now do take plain old credit cards through Stripe. So those of you who have had problems with PayPal being a pain in the ass, and I certainly have, uh, you can now sign back up and get your membership going again with none of those problems. With that, I want to say... Uh, it's been a great introduction, and uh, I am looking forward to being gone, but I'm also looking forward to this interview with our guest today, Mike Sentex. Hey, Mike, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Good to see you again. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm glad to have you on. I know we, we've, had you, uh, we've had you at our workshops. Have you been on the air with me before? I don't think so. I think no. I've, I've been at a workshop, but you, you, uh, I don't think I've ever been on air with you. Yeah, you've been on as an instructor. Yeah, cool, man. It's, it's good to talk to you again. Um, you got a lot to tell us about today because, like, you're just like in ground zero as to dealing with like Hurricane Harvey. You're like, well, I don't know about ground zero. You're like ground zero point one, like just just outside of the really the worst of it. But you've been a big part of helping people and and responding and seeing what's going on in your you know your hometown and all. Trying, uh, yeah. But before we get into that, can you just kind of give people a little bit about your background? Uh, sure. You know, I don't know. You're in high school picking your nose in, in 10th grade and study hall looking at a girl trying to figure out what to do with your life. And how do you end up doing whatever the hell you do now? <laughs> you saw my yearbook, obviously. Okay. <laughs> hey, well, you know, I was, I was born and raised in Houston. Um, I, I grew up on the west side of town and um, went to high school. Uh, I spent as much time as I could outside of school uh, hunting or fishing or uh, just doing anything to be outdoors. I was one of those kind of people that just was uncomfortable, cooped up in the in the in the classroom. But uh, I got out of I got out of high school and and went on to college and uh, kind of trying to find my my path there. And uh, I kind of liked uh, some of the real estate I learned about and real estate law and finance. And so I ended up you know pursuing that is a, a college program and graduated from that. And then got into uh, the real estate business. Um, then kind of Varied various different areas of it, uh, services, uh, brokerage, uh, appraisal, all that stuff. But you know, this whole time I was hunting and fishing less. I'll just let you know that. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I, I finally started my own company. I, I'm kind of backwards. I uh, uh, became an entrepreneur uh, before the age of 30 and owned my own company, uh, and I did that for 10 years. Uh, and then I just kind of wanted to do something different, so I ended up going to work for a large financial services company, and um, that's what I'm doing now. But uh, my love and passion is is uh, always uh, in the outdoors and uh, pursuing uh, all the all the fun things that, that we're fortunate enough to be able to do in Texas 12 months a year. Uh, so that's kind of it. Very cool, man. So when you were down there watching all this stuff go on, you know, we talk about preparedness all the time, and... Preparedness is basically anticipating what probably will happen and trying to be prepared for what will probably happen. So a lot of times you can do the best you can, but in the end, where the rubber meets the road, you see the reality of what's necessary. With that in mind, what tools do you think were the most effective on the ground during Hurricane Harvey? Well, you know, I, I've, I've been a... a TSP listener for years, and, and even before that, I was I was into preparedness and uh, have, have you know helped people and, and, and prepared for emergencies and things like that. Um, I, I think a lot of the things that I picked up 
from you, Stephen Harris, TSP, uh, things like that really helped me out. One of the things that I used and, and really got some, some good information from was my Baofeng radio, uh, which was programmed to uh, pick up the uh, local fire and rescue stations. So I was able to, by, by hearing where they were calling in, I was able to know where the problem areas were. And uh, this, this disaster was I mean, it was literally spread out all over the Houston area, but there were little pockets. So, you know, you may be fine. There's nothing in your neighborhood, but half a mile down the street, there's a big problem. So that was real helpful there. Uh, I would say probably the NOAA weather radio uh, delivered the, the, the most reliable information uh, without uh, the, the, you know, tricolor pink uh, blob and and you know, leaning weathermen screaming in their microphone uh, about the hurricane and you're trying to get some information, you can't get much out of that. So I, I really, just a basic normal weather radio was help, helpful. Um, uh, I have a three-quarter ton uh, four-by-four crew cab truck, you know, kind of like you, and uh, that was very helpful because there was just, it, it. there became a point with about 12 to 20 hours after the uh, storm hit that driving in a car just wasn't really smart. And uh, so having a high-clearance vehicle uh, was very helpful, but, but there were certainly areas where that was, that was not going to get you through uh, as well. Uh, having 12 uh, five-gallon cans of fuel was very helpful uh, because I wasn't running around like a you know, madman uh, the day before the hurricane trying to find gas. Um, I was actually I've made a video on my, my YouTube site about doing that, it just kind of showing what people were doing and and how they weren't prepared. Uh, some things I didn't, two tools I didn't have, but I probably needed uh, a good rain suit. I didn't have a good rain suit, and and maybe some waders or a, a you know tall set of rubber boots, a boat or a kayak would have been helpful to a lot of folks uh, if if they were you know in an area that was flooding to get people out. So those are some tools I think. Uh, that, that I really found useful. Very cool, man. Um, so one of the other things that we, we we talk about from time to time and I, I found to be really useful are kind of the electronic apps world. So what were some of the most effective apps on the ground during Hurricane Harvey? I mean, I know we used Zello extensively, so I'm sure you'll mention that, but I'm sure there were other things as well. Yeah, exactly. The, the – uh, the smartphone uh, has come into its age as an uh, emergency uh, preparedness device. Uh, the reliability of the cell signals in most of the impacted areas was really strong. We had some weak areas, but uh, having a smartphone, we just didn't have that during Hurricane Katrina or Ike. And uh, the apps are just incredible out there. One of the apps I use a lot and, and was using before this, the uh, hurricane was Dark Sky. It's a weather app. Uh, and it, I like it because it kind of shows you where you are in proportion to the radar, and it, it just kind of makes it a real quick reference to see uh, what's coming. And that was useful when we had, like, bands of, uh, of rain, heavy rain coming in. Not You could know when to go outside to pick something up out of the truck or something like that. It was helpful. Zello, for sure. Zello, um, you know, I, I feel really bad because, uh, you know, for, for you know, years you've been – been advising us as listeners to uh, uh, become a part of the Zello community, and I just, you know, I downloaded it to my phone. I had, I signed up with a name, and I had all that. I just never used it, and oh my goodness, um, Zello was a, it, it was the thread that held uh, the networks together for not only uh, groups like CAC, but the Cajun Navy, uh, 
there was a uh, her, there was a Harvey mapping Zello channel that was providing people were providing up to the minute information about flooded roadways, uh, impassable areas, dangerous areas. That, that was Zello. If you're not on Zello, you need to go through the process of getting on Zello and getting familiar with it because in a disaster you're going to rely on it. There's just no way around it. Uh, Glimpse Glimpse is another app that we use to. Uh, uh, basically track where all our people were uh, in the area, where people that we were working with or cared about or family members. You can put them on there and track them, and uh, it makes it kind of nice uh, when you're getting information uh, to one party, and that party can relay the information to another party, knowing exactly where they are and what they're about to see. That was a very helpful app. Uh, apps like Waze, um, Waze Live Map, which is kind of a PC-based deal. Um, I, if you haven't used Waze, I don't know why you haven't. Uh, it's very helpful. Uh, and then when you, you know, Google Maps, Dropbox, some things like that. Uh, DriveTexas.org was a website that we used uh, that provided pretty good uh, updated information about roadways. But transportation and movement in, in, in a disaster like this spread out over such a wide area was so critical. And, and without this kind of communication and, and networking that we were able to do, uh, and it, you know, it wasn't just me, our groups, it was, you know, all sorts of different groups. And we were communicating with each other, and the communications, no doubt, uh, saved dozens and dozens of lives. Just, just no doubt about it. There's a, kind of a weird dynamic, too, to me anyway, with Harvey that changed some of the needs. And I wonder if you've noticed this. Most of the time with this type of damage, widespread hurricane damage and flooding, you would have had a tremendous amount of people without power. Now, there were power outages, but nowhere near what was expected. So I think that changed things on, you know, even things like the need for water. There was plenty of need for water, but it wasn't like Katrina, right? Because the, all of the, the most, if you had still had access to your home, you had access to water and the sewers worked, even with all the flooding. And that meant that maybe generators were less needed. We didn't see people, you know, begging somebody to let them plug a phone in as, as, as frequently anyway. Was, was that a little different? And I, I think it was because, like, that storm just really didn't spawn, like, widespread tornadoes and stuff like that. Oh, exactly. Exactly. It was the difference between a disaster and a catastrophe. Um, mm-hmm. If, 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 and you've just if you're not from the southeast Texas area, uh, you just can't imagine what it feels like to be in 95 degree heat with 99 percent humidity and no air conditioning. It's just it's just miserable. And had there been a major power outage, all these people uh, would have basically been trying to spend three or four or five days without you know any any air conditioning, even if they weren't impacted by the flood, and that would have been, been catastrophic. Um, I, I think the, the, the fact that there was pretty good electricity in most parts uh, really aided the recovery and, and rescue operations, and it mitigated the, the damage. And comparing it to Ike in 2008, um, I went without electricity in my home for two weeks straight. Um, and a lot of people got power before then, but... It, if you've ever been in your house without power uh, for a week, it's pretty tough. Um, if you've been more longer than a week, it's completely miserable. It's just uh, 
even with a generator, you, you, you know, unless you have a complete whole house generator, it's, it's unbearable sometimes in this kind of heat where you need so much air conditioning and so much electricity demand. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. I went without power for a little over a week during an ice storm in Hot Springs, and it was very cold out. It was much easier to warm up the house with like a fireplace and a propane heater and things like that than it was to try to keep something cool in the middle of summer. It is absolutely miserable, as uh, many of our brothers and sisters are finding out right now in Florida where there's still wide-scale power outage. So, I mean, I think if we would have combined wide-scale power outages with the flooding we had, like you're right, instead of a disaster, it would have been an absolute catastrophe, and a hell of a lot more people would have died. And the reason I say that is, like, you don't hear about, you know, how great it was to have a generator down there. And what I don't want people to do is look at that and say, well, then that maybe that's not as important as I thought it was. The whole like the kind of what we let off with the whole point of disaster preparedness is you do your best to prepare for what you think could happen, and that means you have to prepare for all contingencies. It that, that's funny because it, you know here I am thinking that I'm I'm a you know prepared and prepared disminded person, and I planned for the expected. But I didn't plan for the unprecedented, hmm. and I and I think we naturally do that sometimes. We have a tendency to plan for what we expect to happen and ignore what would just be the wildest deal. I mean, I I didn't think my house would flood. I'm not near a floodplain. I don't have any problems like that, uh, and I was I was completely unprepared for a flood. Um, luckily, I didn't flood. But I bet there's you know, 10,000 other people just like me that thought they were prepared that their house flooded. And, you know, when you get three feet of water in your house, your generator's gone, your gasoline's gone. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you need to plan for that contingency. So, yeah, yeah, that's – that's the electricity is a big deal. And, that was and a huge us. thing there, man. People that, you know, had been through multiple major flooding events in Houston who, who didn't even get, you know, their carpet moist – ended up with, like you said, three feet of water in their home. And, you know, I mean, there's a limit to what you can even do about that. I mean, if you're fortunate enough to at least have a second story, you can move a lot of stuff up there. But, man, you know, if you have a one-story home, it's it sucks, I mean, is the only way to put it. And I, I think right now, in the aftermath, the biggest problems are people trying to save their homes from mold and things like that. Yeah, it, 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 you just can't understate how surprised so many people were that they flooded. There was just no expectation. There's many, many areas way outside of the floodplain that got two, three, four feet of water in them. And, um, you know, that, that's that, uh, you know, we just, we think because it hasn't happened before, it's, it, it, it's not going to happen. But uh, all bets were off in this disaster. And um, I, I think... A lot of people learned a lot, and I learned a lot, and uh, am, am probably going to go back and take a different view of my ideas of preparedness. Um, and, and I think the best way you could have prepared for this storm was to basically go outside, shut your power off in the middle of the summer, and live in your house for the next five days and see what you need. <laughs> yeah, 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 no doubt, right? That would so motivate you to get prepared. <laughs> So one of the big things people need during these events, and people don't, this is like something people really don't plan for, is intel. Like what's going on, what's available, where are people that can help you, where are people that need your help. What did you think the most reliable sources of intel during the storm and subsequent flooding were? Um, I, I think that 
the, the Zello again. I can't understate Zello. It 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 provided just incredible amounts of information to people all over the area, not just not just in my area. Um, the the uh, ways and drivetexas.org were again those were, were very valuable. Um, I, I think Facebook played a role. I, I think Facebook. Uh, was was helpful for neighborhoods where you had a neighborhood that was starting to experience flooding and people were shocked and, and Facebooking their friends and neighbors that their house was starting to flood. I think that helped a lot. There just wasn't any kind of broad-scale coverage of, hey, there's flood water coming up the street and, and you're next. So I think Facebook provided a good a good uh, tool and, and intelligence in that part. Um, you know, I think... It, Really, the like I said, the the um, the uh, radio, the uh, emergency and uh, uh, fire radio was very helpful because you you could pinpoint exactly where the problems were. Um, so, you know, the the intelligence was based heavily on the smartphone and the computer. Um, I I don't think the news was very helpful. I, I don't think. Uh, the reporting that I saw on the local or, or national news or the Weather Channel, I, I don't think I, I think they're working so hard to sensationalize it and 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 mesmerize viewers that the 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 actual intelligence you need to know to make really informed decisions like do I evacuate or do I stay put uh, that that just wasn't there. Uh, NOAA is really the only thing I, I relied on as being fact coming coming from the media basically. Um, so yeah, I mean Zello, people texting people, Facebook, those those were the, the the most reliable intelligence I believe during the during the disaster. Very cool, man. You know, um, did did you guys use any of the like um, like radio scanner apps uh, like Five O Radio Pro or anything like that to listen to first responders? I've used that before, and but luckily I, I kind of had my Baofeng radio uh, set up okay. to do that. So I used basically I was using the same, using it as a scanner, which you can do easily. And um, man, well, I, I just a, it was a hell of very, a tip because you're talking about a sub thirty dollar radio instead of a four hundred dollar police scanner, and yet it's independent from the cellular uh, data networks. Exactly, exactly, and. Um, you know, I, I shot some video uh, during the during the event, and just I just recorded some of the radio calls you could hear from rescuers and stuff like that. And it, it's just amazing. They're they're ne- they're naming streets, they're naming subdivisions. I know who's flooding within a half mile of me. I know where the the, the, the responders are. Um, man, I I don't I don't know if it was you or Stephen Harris that that harped more on getting and learning how to use that radio. Uh, even as a monitoring tool, if you're not going to go and get your ham license, uh, but yes, it was well worth the money uh, in this disaster. Okay, um, what have you seen as far as the differences? You've seen a transition from rescue and aid over to basically cleanup and recovery. It's it's that cycle that 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 the uh, you know the emergency disaster people kind of highlight the. The rescue, relief aid, recovery, reconstruction cycle. Um, it, it, it's interesting because the rescue part is the most highly charged and emotional point that can, tends to attract the most interest. That's when all the t- television news is covering it, and it 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 
generates a, a, a emotional reaction in people, and it kind of gives you a, a even if you're here or not here, it gets you charged up like, hey, I got to go help those people, and and so that that gets your adrenaline going, and then as the relief starts coming in, the rescue dies down. Um, the the rescue as as the rescue dies down, the relief picks up, and that's that part between rescue and relief is a big hole uh, because the big big relief agencies can't get in fast enough. Uh, it usually takes them a week or two, and so that's when you're that's when we saw really in my mind uh, one of the, the the greatest voluntarist events I've ever seen in my lifetime. When people all over the country started pouring uh, just money and, and supplies and goods and, and water and food and just trucking it down here, we had people coming in from out of state, uh, probably every state in the country, to help. And and that relief effort uh, really extended that uh, that uh, adrenaline from the rescue effort, and that lasted maybe about a week, uh, and then that kind of died down, and we started. Uh, Still trying to find the, the, the relief needs, but starting to think about recovery, and that's when we started having a big demand for for volunteers and people to go into houses and and cut out the sheetrock and muck out the houses. And there just there were there were literally uh, the churches were phenomenal in this part. They, they stepped up. I know of one church in Houston that mucked out a thousand houses uh, with volunteers and and. You know that's that's something that has to be done, like you said, to prevent the the mold contamination and, and basically the the whole loss of the house. Uh, if you don't muck it out, if you don't get all that stuff out like you're supposed to, uh, FEMA's really you know you're going to have a hard time with FEMA if you have flood insurance. Uh, so it was it's a lot of work. I think somebody estimated that the, uh, the between the man hours and labor, it was probably a six to ten thousand dollar job to have done. Uh, and I would guess the most. The, most of it that happened in the first week to ten days were completely volunteers, and we're talking about thousands and thousands of houses. Uh, so that that that's kind of the beginning of the recovery. Uh, uh, the recovery died down a little bit. You know, again, this this at this point you're pretty exhausted from sure from from, from two weeks of adrenaline and uh, uh, trying to help people and and not getting much sleep. And so uh, you know, I think a lot of people found themselves kind of conking out after about 10 days <laughs> of, of trying to help every day and every night. But uh, that recovery effort is still ongoing now. Um, it is still consisting of, of house cleanup. There's uh, a big push right now for uh, contractors and drywall repair people. Uh, if there's anybody in the listening audience that's sitting at home uh, wishing they had a job and money and wanted to uh, – learn a trade, uh, you could get in your car and drive down to Houston right now and hire on with a drywall crew. And, uh, you know, you can go on Craigslist and look at the ads. They're paying up to $25 an hour for guys like that. Uh, so that's where we are now. We need, you know, we've just got hundreds of thousands of houses that sustain damage. And that's not even counting commercial buildings. And, and most of the remediation companies have already been contracted out by the, you know, the commercial properties. So there's not a lot of people out there you can hire to come come help fix your house and get yourself back to a normal condition right now uh, just because of the overwhelming demand for uh, uh, recovery experts and, and, and people and labor. materials right oh, oh yeah 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 there, there we had some sheetrock shortages initially and I think those are starting to let up a little bit but uh, 
I mean, yeah. I can only imagine. I remember the building boom here in the early 2000s. It was just a building boom, right? It wasn't anything approaching the demand level in the Houston area right now. And that created shortages, and it jacked up prices. So I, I can only imagine what that market's like right now. Exactly. It, it's, uh, and, and that's what I've been telling people. If you, if you want to help somebody uh, in Houston right now and they own a home, the best thing you could probably give them is a Home Depot or Lowe's card <laughs> because they're going to – you know, I mean if you drive through Houston right now and you can go anywhere in the city and find a neighborhood that you'll drive down the street and everything that was inside the house prior to the flood is piled up on the street curb in front of the house. And it's that way completely – down the whole street on both sides. And and so, you know, the the loss that was sustained, when they say a damaged home or a, a flood-damaged home, it may have only got two feet of water in it. Yeah. But but you those people probably lost all their furniture, uh, most of their bedding, uh, you know, carpeting's hand, done. Carpeting, flooring. Most yeah, flooring's exactly. done. There might be, if you had concrete floors or something, you might survive it. But any other regular flooring... And drywall's done. I mean, it's right. gone. Insulation's coming out of the walls. I mean, you're basically stripping the interior of the house and doing a full internal remodel. That's so a small house. You can, I mean, a small house. Yeah, you could say twenty five thousand dollars, right? Yeah. I mean, it, easy. Um, so, so really, that's that's where we are, kind of in our recovery now. The the big boys have come in. Uh, Red Cross and and Salvation Army have have been helping out. FEMA has uh, provided vouchers. Uh, there, there's good, strong rec- uh, relief aid operations going on around the city. Now, I think some of the areas outside the city may be struggling more than, than necessarily inside the city because obviously there's just less people and less help. Uh, we found found that to be the case in some of the stuff we looked at. But uh, we're we're just kind of kicking off the recovery effort, and I think. You could talk to me in six months and find that that we're still in recovery. Yeah, I um, think you'll be, you know, and I think this is a multi-year uh, recovery before it's it's pretty much you know everything that's going to go back to the way it was is back the way that it is. Um, you provided a lot of direct assistance, but you also were one of our. Uh, our safe spots, basically, a, a place of, like a forward operating base for our responders that were there to help. Um, we need more people to provide that in the future because there will be future disasters, and CAC has now kind of had its coming out party and has found itself <laughs> and knows what it knows what it's doing, right? Big bash. <laughs> right? So, um, you know... Uh, there's probably people that are maybe a bit apprehensive about saying, hey, you know, you, random people can show up and, 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 and grab a bed here or take a shower or camp in my yard. But can you, can you kind of talk about what it was like uh, hosting our, our, our team responders in your home? Sure, sure, I understand. Um, and, and to kind of paint the picture from where I was, um, I had obviously heard about CAC. I was not involved with CAC at all. But, you know, 24 hours after Jack said, get out, get out, get out, get out, uh, I started paying more attention, and I should have been paying more attention before you said that, but I started paying more attention to what was happening, and it wasn't hard to see that, that uh, yeah, the weather patterns and everything, we were going to have some major flooding, and I wasn't expecting flooding worse than we'd ever seen, So, but I was expecting there would be a lot of need and whatnot. So I, I just emailed Stephen Harris and said, hey, um, I'm here in North Houston. Uh, can I, can I, you know, 
I'm going to be here. I'm not leaving. People are going to need help. I'm sure CAC is planning on being down here. I uh, just want, you know, kind of include me in the loop, and, and I'll be able, happy to help however I can. I mean, I was just kind of informally uh, contacting them, and uh, Stephen got back with me and, and basically said, look, uh, right now we don't have – the, the kind of we don't have any coverage of the whole Houston area. We don't we, we've got we've got you and a, maybe a couple other people that, that may or may not help out. You're the only guy we got that that's you know offering your home to us. Can can we send some guys down and uh, have them stay with you? And you know certainly I'd understand how somebody would like. Yeah, I don't know if I want you know a bunch of strangers in my house, but you know when you're in the middle of a disaster, your your perspective changes. Um, you're either going to be a victim or you're going to be a responder. There's no other options. You, 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 and, and so I was trying to be a, a good victim or a good responder either way, and I knew having CAC uh, nearby would be nothing but, but beneficial if I found myself in the, uh, uh, the victim category. So, uh, so they sent uh, two, guy, two guys down, uh, two different vehicles, and um, – Chris and Brian are great guys. Uh, I think they stayed at your house before they came down here to mine, and uh, they showed up with two two truckloads, just literally truckloads of food, clothing. I mean, everything you would think would be needed in a disaster. And I think they were here within 24 hours of the the time the the flooding stopped or started. I mean, I mean, so yeah, there was still flooding when they got here. And yeah. so, oh, it was, uh, yeah. Rain was so, still falling, man. It, yeah. oh, right, right. And so they got here, <laughs> and it was kind of funny. They showed up, and they're like, okay, we're here. We got it. And I'm, I'm like, oh, great. I'm so glad you're here. And we kind of looked at each other, and we're like, what do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, we got to find people that need stuff. And so they just – I jumped in the van with them, and, and, and we just started driving around, and we hit uh, several uh, relief centers that were being set up. Uh, we we hit uh, uh, some churches. We hit uh, we went into neighborhoods that I knew uh, were were prone to flooding. Um, and and you know the, the what what I learned was that the the shelter or forward operating base is, is only successful if you have somebody local that knows the area and you have dedicated, willing volunteers who are willing to drive down to the area and spend some time, days, uh, helping out. The, you put those two together, you've got a very effective uh, relief uh, team and, and that's, that's helping people before most relief teams have even got off the ground. And, and that was the secret. That's what worked. And as soon as we got rid of the – we had all of the things they brought down distributed uh, before – 7 p.m. the night they got here. And so w- more loads were coming down from other uh, other CAC team members, and we went and tried to obtain uh, other supplies and things like that over the next couple of days. And it was just a repetitive cycle. We just we, we kept loading up with supplies, distributing supplies, loading up, and uh, literally tons, tons and tons and tons of supplies. Uh, the, the generosity of, of people was just overwhelming. Uh, we've got everything from, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, diapers, formula, food, water, uh, medical supply. I mean, just you name it, things people were going to need. And I think the day after the, the CAC team got here, uh, 
as we were going back through the shelters, many, not all, but many of the shelters were not taking any more supplies because they were full. And, and this is just as the flood, it just as the rain stopped. So I, I can't tell you how prepared uh, the, 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 the responders were in the midst of this disaster as opposed to something like Katrina where everybody was kind of standing around wondering who's going to, who's going to do what. And, and so, uh, we got off to a good start and, and having the, having the, having the team members in the, in, in my home was great. Uh, but I, I mean, I'll admit you're in a, you're in a disaster. Yeah. Uh, and, and if, if nobody had been in our home, it would have been stressful. Sure. Uh, just because we're trying to find out if, if our parents are okay, if our family members are okay, is anybody's house flooding? Does anybody need to evacuate? Are we going to need to put my in-laws in that guest bedroom? I mean, bedroom? to be fair, we were lucky you were there and you volunteered, so we had a base of operations. Ideally, it would have been better to have somebody another 20 or 30 miles north. I mean, that, that would be our deal jumping off points. The, the, the point people are staying at is you know just outside of the impact zone completely so that the people hosting them are not under stress. They're completely safe when they're resting and frankly shit's available to take with them back in. Right. You know, right. but you know, right. you you work with what you have and 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 you know, a personal thank you I extend to you at this point for, you know, having been willing to do it. Uh, any any I guarantee you any TSP listener uh would have done the same thing if they found themselves right smack dab in the middle of a, a, a ongoing disaster and and seeing the carnage of flooding that's affecting so many thousands of people around here and knowing that you know there's thousands and thousands of victims and, and not enough responders and so like I said you're you're in this kind of situation you're just going to be a victim or you're going to be a responder and you know thank God uh, my house did not flood. We didn't know it would or wouldn't. We were kind of scared. My wife was making me go outside in the middle of the night to see where the water was down the street. You can understand that. Yeah, I can. L- luckily, yeah. it was a two-story house. So. But thousands and thousands of people were going through the same thing. They didn't know if they were going to get flooded. If and, and many of the houses that got flooded were flooded three or four days after the actual hurricane. So uh, due to due to releases from lakes and dams and things like that. So it, it was a weird time, and, and it was a, a, is the, the key word that most people use that were here, uh, surreal. Um, but I, I just wish that we had a, a network of, of people, whether they're members of the CAC team or not, uh, people around the country that just were willing to say, hey, if I find myself in the middle of the disaster CAC team's welcome to come to my home and use it as a staging area. It's, I mean, it's not a big commitment. Uh, I didn't have to feed anybody. Uh, they brought their own food. Um, you, you know, the, the, luckily we had a, a, a bed for them to, a couple of beds for them to sleep in. If they hadn't, they'd have slept on the floor. It was no big deal. So, no, it was, it was, it, it was a stressful time, uh, but it was also a time of, 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 of great adrenaline. Uh, we were all trying to do what we could do to help our neighbors. That's all it was. And these guys came from, then, uh, don't forget, these guys drove down here from Missouri and Tennessee to help. And, and I can't tell you how many people came down to help from Utah, uh, Colorado. I mean, just the, the, 
the the fact that CAC has volunteers that that aren't you know paid salaried people that that will get in their car and drive halfway across the country to to help people uh, just there's not a lot of organizations I've come across that that do that so it it made me a big fan um, I'm I'm a big CAC team fan now and uh, uh, I, you know I was putting out uh, videos and I started after they said they'd come down and help I started trying to promote them I was like yeah. come on guys we need all the help we can get well and what I can say is I know it would be intimidating for anybody to, to kind of step up and do that but personally you know you've been here to one of my workshops as an instructor you know I open my home several times a year to 40 or 50 people out of this audience and it's a different circumstance <laughs> it's a different circumstance but what it's taught me is the 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 moral compass of this community is unbelievable you would think after probably what i guess i've probably done 20 large workshops that i would have at least one horror story of someone stealing something or doing something really wrong or whatever I guess we had one guy that was kind of creepy out of all of those, but he didn't actually do anything. Um, and and when you when you have that many interactions with that many people out of a community, and basically you look at it as everybody that you interact with, and it's not just here. You know, we did that at Elijah Springs. We've done it with uh, workshops at Nick Ferguson, and every time we've gotten people to get around this community, the the level of of moral willingness to chip in to help to take care of each other has blown me away such that you know even my wife's like I can't believe how how great everybody is you know yeah. and it's it, it's really a weird thing and it's it's hard to explain I guess but you know it is what it is and it's 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 been repeated enough times you know the Zello community getting together and running their own things and helping each other it, it's kind of unbelievable it's at some point it's funny because at some point you have to trust people, and yeah. and, and I, I don't think there's any, any better opportunity to do that in the middle of a disaster. Uh, you're going to have to, and uh, you know I'm I'm a preparedness-minded person from way back, and and I completely understand the lone wolf uh, mentality and the and I'm I'm kind of a not necessarily out outward person. I'm a little introverted, and my wife's a little introverted, and you know we like our our privacy just like uh, Dorothy and you do, you know, but. Yeah. <laughs> It, but it, you know, in, in certain situations, uh, I, I've, I've really the people I've met at TSP workshops, the people I've worked with from TSP, the people I've met from CAC. Uh, these are just a much higher caliber person than you're going to come across in your your day to day travels. Because first of all, they're willing to learn and they're willing to help. And you know how hard it is just to find people that are willing to help and learn. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's tough. So they're, they're great. They're great folks, and and I would not hesitate uh, any time having having those those folks back. But you know, I also understand if somebody was saying, "Look, I don't, you know, really want these people in my house, but hey, I'll set up a thing in the driveway, and they can they can sleep in an RV, or they can sleep in the car, and I'll have some you know power or water and everything available. That's fine. That's fine. Whatever you can do. But it's more important that we have. A hundred forward operating bases spread out all over the country for the next major disaster, where we have no idea where it's going to be. Uh, then, then we just have a, a, a rigorous short list of people that have are, are okay with somebody being in their house. I can't think so, one of the one of the big things is, man, a lot of these people that came and responded were not officially CAC team members until this happened. 
Oh, no. And no. when the certified people didn't show up, the community showed up. And that was that was heart, heartwarming, really, to uh, see We deputized people. people on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. You're on the team. Yeah. <laughs> Go deliver this. I don't want to be. Well, you are anyway. You've just been drafted. <laughs> right. Let's move on, man. Right, you're, it, you're, it, it was great. I mean, uh, Jack, the, the, again, I mean, if anybody needs to, to ever uh, understand the power of the individual working with their neighbor, uh, this this event just really highlighted what can happen uh, when people nobody around here waited for the government to do anything. Nobody waited for FEMA. Nobody waited for anything. The the call went out. People were in, people were stranded, needing help. Uh, every redneck bass fisherman within a hundred miles of here had his boat. Down at the, uh, the the creek or the river, uh, the Cajun Navy came in. Uh, they were on the radio inviting anybody to come with them and help out. It was a complete and utter open free for all for individuals who were willing to help. And and they were swamped. They were swamped with individuals willing to help. And and it just it it just made me feel so good uh, to know that I live in an area. And there's, it's just like this anywhere else in the country, but. When we quit worrying about it's somebody else's responsibility and we just step up and do our little part, like letting some guy stay in my house, that was a little part. Uh, if everybody does that, man, we, we can just crush major problems. It's amazing. Okay, man. Um, when we look at life in general, preparedness, survival, winning with money, all of it, I always say that it's it's 50% the things that you do and 50% how you think in your mental state, right? So, like, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, but it certainly applies to survival, preparedness, disaster response. So what were, like, the mental conditions that you observed with victims and responders during this event? Uh, it was interesting because I... I, I I noticed other people having issues, and, and I know, and, and it does. It does. It happens in victims and responders, and part of it has to do with that disaster high rush where uh, you know our our adrenaline is going, and, and we're pushing ourselves. I mean, some of these first responders literally were working 36 hours straight. I mean, it was just that's how bad it was, and and that takes a toll on you physically, but mentally. Um, you know, the, the the initial response from victims was typically um, uh, they were stunned. I mean, I you know, it would be exactly how I felt if I thought my house was never going to flood and I'm standing in my living room watching the Weather Channel and there's water around my ankles. You know, what do I – oh, my God, I don't believe this is happening. You know, it was surreal for, for most people, and and that induced a, a kind of a state of shock that, that lasted for the first few days. And you saw that uh, is, is one of our uh, CAC team uh, first responders in, in, in Beaumont said. Uh, she said everybody walk, was walking around like a zombie. And, and these were volunteers that had been flooded out of their homes that were volunteering to help because they didn't have a home to go back to. Uh, so it, it's really a, a interesting to, to watch the mental things. I noticed it in myself after about four or five days. Uh, that, that I, I was finding it tougher to make decisions. I was forgetting things, you know, my keys and stuff like that. It, it, it's, it's really interesting because I don't think as, as, as preppers or preparedness-minded people that we, we, we don't really plan for that. We don't plan for that stress and that, that 
the things that happen to our brains when we get in a situation like that. And I think we probably should think about it more. Um, you know, after, like I said, the same thing happened with me when uh, I was without power for two weeks. The, you know, the first week, it was no problem. I was getting through it. I, you know, had the generator, had everything like that. But, but then you just, you, you know, after about a week, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people felt like this, you, they just start losing hope. Well, how am I going to, how am I going to deal with this? I mean, what's my insurance company going to do? I don't have flood insurance. Uh, how am I going to replace all the things I own? I'm, I got to go to work. I got, I can't, you know, a lot of these people, had to leave their house with all their belongings out on the curb and go to work. <laughs> you know, and they're, they're operating in a world of whether they're at a factory or an office that, you know, everybody's doing their normal activities and, and it's just a surreal mental challenge for, for people. And, um, I'm, I'm, I, I, I find it fascinating. I really want to learn to understand it more because I think it's a, it's a huge part of, of what responders need to understand going into the situation. And, um, uh, it, it's the psychological stress is incredible, and it will be continuing to affect. From what I've read about Katrina, it'll continue to affect uh, victims uh, for six months to the next year. I think they did a study in New Orleans with uh, school children uh, after Katrina, and and they were, you know, they had situations of, of you know high anxiety and and other issues, you know. Even years after that event, so it, it's a it's a major disaster, and it doesn't go away. It, it's 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 a strain physically, financially, and mentally. Interesting, man. So um, after being through all of this and seeing all of this, how would you advise someone to be better prepared to survive in a disaster like Harvey that was basically unprecedented? And widespread. <laughs> well, before Harvey, that would have been an easy question to answer. But, but, but again, it's 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 not natural for us to plan for the unprecedented. I mean, it's not natural for me to plan for us for an avalanche. Well, there's no mountains, there's no snow. I mean, but in order to be completely prepared, you have to kind of get out of the box sometimes in your thinking. I mean. My, my preparedness was much more keyed to wind damage and power loss than it was flooding. Um, so, you know, I didn't plan for my home to be flooded with four feet of water, and neither did thousands and thousands of other people. Uh, and the other thing I didn't plan for was an escape route to get to higher ground, one that avoided bridges or bayous or creeks and things like that. Uh, thousands of people should have had that plan, and, and lives were lost because people – Panicked in, in, in the, the flooding and tried to escape it and ended up being in their vehicle and drowned. So, so there's all the things we learn in, in preparedness. Uh, sometimes we forget some of them and, and we, we really can't afford to when you're dealing with an unprecedented disaster like this. Uh, I mean, I had a bug out location two hours away, but I probably couldn't have gotten there without, you know, more risk to my life. Uh, of dying in a flooded car, and and so having cleared a plan, when do you leave the house? I mean, when the water's in the yard, when the water's in your living room. Okay, the water's in your living room. Do you leave your house or do you move your stuff upstairs? I mean, these 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 things need to be decided now. Uh, a plan needs to be in place now, because I think a lot of people were caught off guard. They were stunned. They were in shock, and and like we were talking about psychologically. 
they weren't making good decisions at that point. Including and not leaving well in advance. I mean, this was a fairly bingo, yes. long telegraphed punch. I mean, it wasn't the telegraphed punch that the invasion of Iraq was for the first Gulf War. It wasn't <laughs> right. that far out, but it was pretty well telegraphed. And, you know, I, I did write that article, get out, get out, get out. But as soon as I saw Jack was projected right, by the way. path, and it was like doing this, like, basically screwing around, like it looked like it was drunk, and, and I realized it was going to go to Houston that way, there was only one result that could come out of this. I mean, to me, like, what you saw happen in Florida that some now call an overreaction would have still, I think, been somewhat of an underreaction in Houston, like... At least the area is like, okay, you, like we, we both said, there's places that flooded in Houston this time that never flooded. But you know the places that all flooded? Every pe place that ever flooded before, right? Like those people should have at least been evac out of there. And I think a lot of people, you talk about planning, I think a lot of reasons people didn't leave is because they never had a plan, so they were completely indecisive and that, you know, they were in that mode. When do we leave? Well, the best time to leave is when you don't have to. Exactly, exactly. And that's funny because one thing that, that people don't think about, you know, they, they're saying, well, those people need to be evacuated. Well, you know, there's not enough police officers in the, in the county to drag people out of their houses in flood, floodplains. And, and what you'll find in, in, in some of the research I've done, what you'll find is, is that, uh, the older you are, the, the, the less likely you are to evacuate early. And, and that's that, uh, that normalcy bias where I've lived here for 30 years. It's never flooded. I've been through 19 hurricanes. I'm going to go through this one. And that's great. But the guy was in a one story house. The river washed the house away and they can't find him. I mean, that's what we have to be careful of that. Uh, but really, I, I think you need to sit down and, and have a good hard look at where your home lies. Uh, how close are you to the nearest drainage ditch, the nearest bayou? Uh, how close are you to the 500-year floodplain, the 100-year floodplain? And, and, you know, if the odds are 2% that your house is going to flood, uh, are you going to, if you're going to stay there, at least be ready to stay there and, and deal with it. Um, one, the other thing that's problem is people, in, especially in the Houston area, have been on a yo-yo since 2008 when Hurricane Ike hit. Uh, Not a lot of people evacuated, and it was a pretty bad hurricane. And then Hurricane Rita came, and everybody evacuated. Uh, and and uh, that's when we had the the you know 16-hour tie-ups on Interstate 45 with people trying to get out of Houston, and I think eight or nine people died during that. So so you got to class yourself. Are you an evacuee, or are you much safer staying in your home? And, and that's that's a risk assessment everybody needs to make individually based on good information. But you probably need to make that decision before there's a disaster. Um, I, you know, after the whole uh, Hurricane Rita episode, I pretty much decided that whatever I had to do, I was going to be prepared to to bug in basically. And um, so again, like I said, I was prepared for a windstorm. I was prepared for a power outage. But my generator would have got completely flooded out with four feet of water. So we're going to have a different plan here at the old uh, Mike's Intex house uh, as far as what to do with, uh, you know, gas storage and generators in the mm -hmm. event of a potential flood. I mean, we may not have to do it, but you need a plan. You need a plan. 
for the unprecedented. There's nothing that wakes you up like you know, be, having having what you've done up to this point tested. You know, <sighs> man, it, man I, I'm, I'm, I count my lucky stars because I, I, you know, I could have just as easily been one of ten thousand people uh, whose homes never flooded, who thought they were prepared. Uh, who didn't have an effective evacuation plan, uh, who didn't have a, a, a fallback plan for if the house filled up with water. I, I easily could have been one of those. And there's no excuse. There's just no excuse for, for anybody of the preparedness mindset not to think about these things ahead of time. I blame myself. But, but I, I will correct. <laughs> I will correct the, the problems and, and move on with a better plan. So. Okay. Um. What were the most valuable items before, during, and after the disaster? Yeah, that's funny because those change. They, they <laughs> change uh, uh, on a dime. Um, obviously, the pre-disaster, you got the everybody's rushing for fuel and water and food at the grocery store. Um, I, I it was no different here. Uh, by Friday, uh, I think the hurricane hit roughly early Saturday morning. By Friday, I would say. Three quarters of the gas stations in my area were were out of gas. Um, so you know, we've we've talked about that before. There's no excuse for that. <laughs> There's just no excuse. That or water. I mean, easy. Come on. But yeah, water and water was wiped out. The food was wiped out in the grocery store. All the bread items, any of the the the, the perishable items were all wiped out. Uh, and that happened Friday before the pre disaster. Uh, during the rescue phase, uh, probably the most the most valuable item, the valuable items I saw were were obviously boats uh, to help rescue people, um, uh, hygiene kits and uh, towels. Hygiene kits are basically comfort kits that a lot of the uh, disaster organizations put together, and, and they basically contain a, like a towel, a washcloth, some soap, uh, toothbrush, toothpaste, a comb. You know, just just something to, that. When you pull somebody out of the flood water, you can give them going into a shelter. They can walk into the bathroom and feel like a human being again. And and those were those were so valuable and so prized by the people that got them. Uh, and you know it's bad when people are excited to get a, a washcloth and a bar of soap. Um, but yeah, towels, things like that. The other thing that was really lacking in the in the middle of the rescue phase was transportation to evacuee shelters. We had boats going in, picking up people off rooftops, bringing them back to a staging area, and they sat there wet in the you know middle of the street or parking lot for hours because there was nobody to to transport those people to evacuee shelters. And, and that's something I we've talked about at CAC is is planning for in another flood flood emergency that that if we had enough people we could help with that. And that's an easy place for people to help that just want to, that are in the in the environment at the time uh moving moving people from rescue to evacuee shelters is tough uh kind of the pre-relief phase where after the rescue was kind of over got back to water and food uh mosquito spray was huge uh especially in areas over like beaumont where they had standing water out there for you know over a week um cleaning supplies people started trying to clean up their houses uh and then we moved into the relief phase uh Bleach became a commodity, yeah. uh, so, so so all the WalMarts and stores were running out of bleach because people wanted to get in. You know, uh, you've, uh, you've probably read about some of the contents people were finding inside this 
flood water that was coming in their house. I mean, uh, the the E. coli, the the heavy metals, the it, it just it was a in some places it was literally a, a, a toxic soup moving in their house. And, and the most important thing for those people to do was get in there and 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 decontaminate. The, the affected areas. So bleach was really, really an issue, and there was a shortage of it for a while. Uh, again, more food. Uh, volunteers became really, really, uh, and still is, a, a huge area now where we're lacking. We don't have enough volunteers to help clean up. Uh, and then for volunteers, you need things like N95 masks and rubber gloves, work gloves, and everything needed to muck out you know, flooded homes. So um, that... You know, all those areas were were valuable items depending upon what phase of the disaster we were in. And and now as we're moving into the recovery phase, like we talked about, sheetrock, contractors, labor, volunteer labor. And really I'm I'm seeing now that, that things like uh toys, maybe you know, small furniture and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of people are donating sofas and beds um, to people that need them. It's it's very hard to distribute that kind of size stuff, but uh, they're needed. And clothing as well. Uh, clothing we got inundated with in the uh, just literally the in the at the end of the rescue phase, um, there were just truck trailer loads full of clothing coming in. And and Jack, I, I'm telling you, I went to to more than one shelter where. There was just a mountain of clothes in in the parking lot, and nobody had time to go through them and sort them. Nobody had time to to separate male, female, kids, adults, size, anything like that. So if you ever give clothes in a disaster, uh, give a complete a complete outfit, and then take it and put it in a plastic bag and write on the bag. This is for a girl. This is for a boy. This is for a, you know a large man. Just something to give somebody an indication of of what's in it. Because I can't tell you how many volunteers' time was spent just unloading clothing that nobody can use up until about this phase of the disaster. So uh, those are the most valuable items and kind of what I observed. And very cool. And I think it was amazing to see how many people did give. I mean, one of the things we had happen here is those gentlemen that came down to where you were, the first day they were out trying to find people to help, they came across a shelter at a church, and they had a specific list of clothing. And I found a gal on my next door that runs a missionary here. She's like, I have a 10-foot by 10-foot room stacked to the ceiling with clothing. And they didn't just go get clothing from her. They took the list of what was needed. She sorted it out and gave it to them. And as I look at this whole thing, I just... You know, I, I tend not to try to be proud to, of where I live, right? You know what I mean? Like, you hear that quiet <laughs> Like, I did nothing to earn being a Texan except move here, right? It's not like an achievement. But you can't help but be proud to be a Texan when you see the response of what happened here compared to the response in many other areas with similar disasters. It was almost overwhelming. I remember seeing pictures of people in line in Houston. And you're like, oh, these must be people that need help. No, they were people that showed up to help, and they didn't know where to go. People stood in line to help. This this was one of the most amazing, and it, it, I don't know about you, but it kind of pissed me off hearing all the political idiots, like on the the, the, the national news channels, <laughs> talking about how you know it's a good thing that FEMA's here and all. Because I would say that 95% of the help that came in the first three weeks were from private citizens. It wasn't even like the Red Cross and stuff like that. It was just private citizens that went, I'm going to go do something. 
Well, I, all I can say to that is when they say it's not a state, it's a state of mind. Uh, that really describes the people of Texas, whether they were born here or they got here last week. And I'll tell you that we're working with a lady right now who's from Long Island, uh, and she's still working in the area. She spent the last weekend out uh, delivering uh, all sorts of food and clothing to uh, a neighborhood that was really hard hit in southeast Houston. Uh, and she's got an 18-wheeler full of uh, items coming from Long Island because all of those people went through Hurricane Sandy or Tropical Storm Sandy, and they know what it's like to be the victim. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't – I don't care if you were born here or you got here an hour ago. Uh, if you've got that frame of mind, uh, you fit right in. You fit right into Texas. I'd and, agree with that 100%. And, and, um, and you know, the, uh, and I, I don't, I don't want to bash the, the, the larger service organizations and stuff like that because they, I will. They, 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 <laughs> I will want them just in not set up to anyway. respond that fast. I mean, they, they're just, they're, they're such a huge mammoth organization. And you know how it is. The bigger you get, the, the, the more bureaucracy you have, the more it takes approvals to do things. They just don't move fast. And, and yeah, after three weeks, they're setting up and they're doing a you know, bang-up job, handing out uh, money and, and stuff like that. But, but they just you – know, there is a place for the private sector, and even these organizations will tell you this. They can't do it without the private sector getting in there fast and early – and volunteers like you and everybody else from TSP that has donated money, donated items, could driven down here from out of state, all of you, all of you, none of this would happen if each of us just said, well, that's not that important. But everybody thought it was important whether they were here or out of state, and they chipped in. And everybody here is working as hard as they can to make sure that every dollar that's coming in here gets to the people who needs it and and – because there's there's just an expectation. I mean, in, you know, in Texas, you expect when somebody says they're going to do something, they're going to do it. <laughs> and uh, you know, so yeah, it's 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 unprecedented. If it wasn't for, and, and I don't want to leave out the, the the folks from Louisiana, we had enormous amounts of people from Louisiana that weren't in the Cajun Navy. We had tons of people from Cajun Navy come over, but we had many many people from Louisiana, Oklahoma. Arkansas. I mean, I swear, I could name almost every state in the country I've heard or, or run into somebody that is that got in their car and came over here to help. Um, and man, I just can't tell you as a as a as a native Houstonian, uh, it, it, there's been many times over the last few weeks that I've I've gotten a little misty at seeing the efforts of of some of these people. It, it's just awe inspiring. Uh, but but yeah, I'm I'm proud to be a Texan. <laughs> No, it, it it really is. It, it is it's humbling and it is heartwarming. Um, in in all of this, you know, we kind of alluded to it, I guess. But who was the most at risk during this event? I, I again, I'd have to say the elderly. Um, you know, I don't know how much of the news you followed or didn't, but uh, you know, there 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 was just some really disturbing uh, incidents that happened here and in Florida in um, uh, nursing homes. Um, and and you know I, I it, it's some of it's so upsetting I, I really don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but frail people that are that are older and again the 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 over sixty crowd that normalcy bias is a very very strong causation factor for people not to heed evacuation orders and 
really good advice on getting the heck out of an area that's about to be flooded. And the, the second group I'd say is probably those in automobiles who tried to evacuate too late. I, I looked at I looked at all the uh, reports from from the fatalities in in the, about the five county area, and it was a pretty decent mix between uh, people that 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 perished in their homes. Uh, the majority of them were were older, uh, and then the other big group of, of fatalities were people in automobiles, either who got caught. You know, unaware or or try to evacuate too late, uh, and obviously those living near rivers or bayous, creeks, drainage ditches, uh, they were very at risk, uh, whether or not they knew it. Um, they all know it now, I, I can assure you. And then those folks in single story homes, uh, yeah, they were at risk, and I think you'll find a lot of the fatalities uh, may have occurred in single story homes. We heard some some stories uh, of you know, there's been. There's been stories of fatalities that didn't get actually reported as fatalities, and I'm kind of curious to do a little bit more digging on that. But uh, um, I'm not I'm not saying the, the the fatality numbers were massaged somewhat, but it's we've heard stories of other issues that didn't really come up in the count, and I don't know if that's that's whose fault that is. But I do know that a lot of the rescuers. Uh, called out over the radio that they were not going to rescue people in two-story houses until they got all the people out of the first-story houses. And that caused a lot of people to be, in, be on the roof for another day. So, uh, And then lastly, probably the rescuers. Uh, some were injured, and I believe a couple were killed. Um, so, so, yeah, and I, you know, it, this, this disaster covered an area of two or 300 miles, uh, and it was severe in all of those areas, in parts of all of those areas. So... Those, yeah. If you if, if if you don't have an evacuation plan, and I don't care if you're in the floodplain or not, if you don't have an evacuation plan, get out of your house and get somewhere. Um, you need to make one now while you can, because a lot of people wish they had. A lot of people wish they'd left, and they didn't. So. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's better. What is the old saying? It's better to 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 regret something you have done than regret something you haven't. Exactly. Uh, I, exactly. I don't know if that's ironclad because there's some things I can think that people regret doing that they wish they hadn't done. But I think as a generalization, it's a pretty good way to live, especially when it comes to something like a disaster. You know, and I was telling people to leave. It was like, you know, the worst thing that happens, you cruise up to Austin, you find a hotel, you have some good barbecue, listen to some good music. It ends up not being necessary and you go home. Right? That's like the worst case scenario. And that's like when you're making these decisions, yeah, you got it. <laughs> you you got to really think. And then I think one of the other things with the elderly, in this instance, one thing I've seen with many elderly people, and I'm not really talking 60-ish because they're kind of out of the baby boomer hippie generation, you know, that were kind of rebels at, at a heart. But like people that are right now like in their 70s and 80s and early 90s, yeah, these are the generation that pretty much did whatever government said to do. So if they got a mandatory evacuation order, you would think they would go, but yet in Houston, your brilliant mayor told them not to, right? And people say, well, you have to think for yourself, but I mean, I think of my, my late father-in-law, and even when he was dealing with dementia, when there were certain things we needed him to do, he wouldn't do it. You said, the doctor says you have to. Oh, okay. Wow. Right? They have that authority mindset And so when authority says, you know, you really shouldn't leave, a lot of them, I believe, went, well, if they said not to, especially when it it matches up with that normalcy bias. It is what you want to hear. I think right. that makes it even more powerful. And, 
You know, all I can say is I hope people have learned from this. And when like when that thing in your gut is saying, I really think I should get out of here, trust it. Because again, the worst thing that's going to happen, you're going to go take an unexpected few day vacation and you know eat out a couple times. That's whereas the alternative is you know being trapped in your home and sitting on your roof and hoping some guy with a bass boat comes and gets you. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing is, is that if if you get out early, you're more inclined to be able to find a hotel. Um, you're more inclined to have a smoother evacuation with less mishaps. Uh, and if for some reason your house gets flooded or washed away, you've got a place to live and, and, and help resolve it. There's plenty of people that didn't get out and had trouble looking for hotels and still may not be able to find a hotel. Um, you know, there's the, the, the impact on this is just, I mean, you know, the, the thing almost 500,000 cars were flooded. I mean, I mean, I just when I think about it, I think about the single mother who's you know got a kid and is trying to work and make a living and you know got to have a car to get to work and her car got flooded out. Well, her house didn't get flooded, but now she's you know in a, in a major dilemma, trying to just make a living. It, this this it, it's been a big issue. And as far as evacuation goes, I can understand a lot of people in this area have have been kind of through the ringer between. Ike, Rita, and, and now Harvey. And I'm going to blame, to some extent, the, the news uh, and the way that the news of uh, you know major weather events gets portrayed. Uh, they're all major events. They're all major disasters. They're, you know, it's like they, they're just praying that it's a bad hurricane so they can get you know, better ratings. Uh, and people are kind of desensitized to that, I think. And so when they come on the TV and say, no, no, this is going to be a disastrous hurricane that's going to bring 51 inches of rain and flood you out of your home, uh, they're like, yeah, just change the channel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to ask you a question kind of as, you know, your profession is in real estate. Sure. So sure. looking around the disaster area, how do you think that's going to impact real estate supply demand values in the impacted areas of Houston. We're talking about one of the largest cities by population in the world. Uh, it's a lot of people and you know Houston has a huge uh, GDP and yeah. there's a lot of stuff that goes on in Houston so these people aren't all just going to leave and give up on Houston and it's and there's there's still going to be people moving to Houston. It's not like people are going to stop because there's going to be opportunities there. So how is this going to affect that? I mean Texas over the past 20 years has been largely immune to these ridiculously inflated real estate costs. But I've seen that start to change lately. And then this can only fuel that fire. Well, certainly, certainly. I mean, just, you know, the the city of Houston has tens of thousands of, of apartment units that are lying. I think there's 14,000 apartment units in the floodway. I mean, that's like in the middle of the creek. Uh, there's another 70,000, I believe, that are in the 100-year floodplain, something like that. I mean, there's just tens of thousands of, of commercial properties, not to mention all the houses that have been damaged. And and what I've seen happen in the past with lower-level uh, flood events like this is there's a period of time where the, the, the value of – Obviously, the value becomes depressed because of supply and demand that people would rather have a house that hadn't flooded than flooded, and they're willing to pay a lot more for one that, that has it than has. Um, and, and, you know, that could be a, you know, good, good substantial chunk of difference for the same house, maybe, you know, 15, 25 percent. I don't know. But 
what what's kind of funny about the real estate is is that after you know three or four or five years everybody kind of moves past that uh, event and and you know there's really not there's not a a definitive map that shows every house that flooded and every house that didn't flood it so it's hard to reference uh, who flooded and who didn't sometimes uh, you know, sellers in the state of Texas are supposed to disclose if the property's flooded. Um, I, I would hope that most would, um, but some I don't. It'd be hard to find out. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Some don't. So I, I think what the impact is, you're going to see. Uh, before the flood happened, there was about 25,000 surplus apartment units in, in the city of Houston. Uh, there's no surplus anymore. Um, those are those are leased up pretty well. Um, I think with housing, you know, Houston's a, a city that that grows horizontally, not necessarily vertically. So, you know, the, the newer construction tends to be in the outlying suburbs and exurbs. Uh, there's going to be more new construction. Uh, there's been a lot of construction up before this, but again, the, the trades and the, uh, the, the 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 help is 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 hard to find, uh, and even more so because of this. So, you know, prices to build homes are going to go up. Uh, the, the thing that probably – I think that will all mitigate itself after three or four years, and we'll kind of get back to some sense of normalcy. Uh, so I, I'm not so worried about that. What I'm really worried about is the typical knee-jerk governmental reaction that anytime there's a crisis, it's a great opportunity to come up with some new taxes and some new restrictions and laws and, and things like that. And I think they're going to make it more restrictive on builders uh, – you know, from from whether requiring elevation surveys or or all that, and it's going to again, it's going to drive up the cost of uh, construction uh, for commercial residential housing. So, I think the days of uh, Houston being, uh, you know, a, a a real bargain in real estate are probably behind us. Um, I, I think that that we're going to catch up to the rest of the country in a in a you know not San Francisco or New York, but but most other major metropolitan areas, we're going to have a, a, a higher average price home, and our, our commercial real estate is going to be uh, more expensive to build. Well, I appreciate you being with us today, Mike, and I appreciate your feedback on all of this. And, uh, you know, like I said, you've been part of the community a long time, so thank you for your involvement with the community as well. Hey, great, man. It's, it's uh, my pleasure. You know, it's, it's just, it's what we do. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's just, you know, if, if my neighbor's got a problem, it's up to me to step up and take care of it. And I hope that my neighbor would do the same. And, and uh, everybody I've met in the TSP community, that's, that's what I've seen. People are just that kind of, that kind of people. So I enjoy it. But, uh, thanks. Well, again, man, I, I completely agree. And thank you for spending time with us today. All right, Jack. Thanks. So great interview with a really great guy. And, uh, you know, it, it is a hard thing, I think, to think about having strangers staying in your home. Um, but I'll tell you guys, if you, if you go to the CAC team website, and I'll have a link in today's show notes for that, and a volunteer, that's one of the things you can volunteer to do. And there's a lot of people that really don't have the time or in any given situation may not have the ability or the time to go into a ground zero location and actually do the work. Um, I mean, I know some people, you know, they really put themselves out there. So I know a couple people who took a week off of work unpaid to go do this, and it wasn't easy for them to do it. I can't expect that everybody would be able to do something like that. 
But the one thing you know many people can do is say, hey, here's a place where people you know can take a shower after working 14 hours for free to try to save somebody's house. And um, we we have learned from this experience at CAC teams. I should I shouldn't even say we. I want to be very clear. I am no longer directly in control of anything at CAC. I founded it. I put together the team that built it. I handed it off to them, and I separated myself from it because I think that's the cleanest way to do things, especially giving, given that it's a nonprofit that I contribute to. Okay, contributing your own nonprofit gets a little with the IRS when you have any authority to say what the organization does. All right, but uh, you know it is my baby. I guess it's like a, it's like a grown adult baby now. I don't get to say what it does, but I am I am its father, and uh, I, I can tell you that. I, I stay in touch with T Steve and Tom, and they have a process in place now that when people volunteer for their homes, that the people that make those, those 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 things available are subjected to a basic background check to make sure it's not somebody cooking meth and it's you know 17 felony convictions or something. And we've streamlined our process with uh, doing background checks on responders, so anybody that would be coming to your location would also have had a background check. Uh, so we, we, we do a pretty good job of making sure that, you know, people who are coming to help at least are who they say they are. And again, people out of this community have blown me away. I mean, I have never had a bad experience with someone coming to my home out of, out of this community. So I just kind of put that out there as a, a reminder. Uh, next up, if you like this show and the work that I do, one of the ways you can help support our show is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you can see all the reviews that I've done of uh, items on Amazon. You can see the Amazon deals of the day. And no matter what you're going to buy today, tomorrow, next week, uh, at, you know, online, as long as you go to tspaz.com first, uh, you, you will end up help supporting the work that we do. And you can check out my really great reviews. I brought back an item today that I think is probably one of the best values that I've ever reviewed. It's a set of kitchen shears, which doesn't seem like a big deal, except these are just so fantastic. They're made by a company called Red Yeti Wear. That's all one word, Red Yeti Wear. And there's some things I really like about these shears. One is power. Look, I'm not looking for you know something that your, your kid would use to cut paper with for a project in kindergarten in my kitchen shears. I want something that will go through the backbone of a chicken. Or a duck without working hard, and these do that. Quality steel. Again, this is a kitchen implement. This is not a craft thing to cut construction paper with. These are made with 2CR14 stainless. This is not something a custom knife maker is going to use, but for the application, it is a great steel. I'd give them an A plus on their performance. Micro, micro serrations. That's kind of what makes everything work. One blade of these is straight edge. The other one has micro serrations. This is why they're so good at cutting through bones and joints and cartilage. And the next thing, and I ha this is a have-to-have have for me. This is like I will not own, I will not own a set of kitchen shears if they do not come apart, if they're not take apart. And this is critical. If I'm going to take apart a raw chicken one day and cut salad vegetables the next day, you have to be able to 100% clean every part of it. 
and take down shears are the only way that you can ensure that you've gotten everything out of those joints and the, what have you. And then you don't want it to fall apart. Like I've had, you know, decent kitchen shears, but you're cutting, they just, because they're takedown, they just come apart. These are designed so that don't happen. They have, uh, really great reviews on Amazon. They get an A plus as far as, uh, checking them out at fake spot. They're only $12.50. Uh, and they have a 4.5 stars total review. Uh, and I've heard from many of you guys that have bought them and bought an additional sets of them. And people that like have folks in their lives who are, you know, big into cooking and stuff like that have given them as gifts. And, and, and everybody's been happy with them. Um, the one thing I will say about them is they are kind of marketed as like they do a lot of things. They have a fish scaler on them, a beer bottle opener, a nutcracker, and a bottle cap opener. Uh, out of curiosity, I I tried the uh, the beer bottle opener. It worked. I think the fish scaler would work, but I just see these as a set of shears. I'm not big on all that other stuff. That's what I'm recommending them as. It's a good set of kitchen shears uh, for everything that you would use kitchen shears for, and for the price of just over $12, bucks, can't beat them. Remember, though, doesn't matter what you need. If you shop through tspaz.com, you help support the survivalpodcast.com and the show that you listen to every day. Next up, let's talk about our song of the day. So our song of the day today was inspired by something that happened yesterday. I'm not going to beat up the guy too much, but I'm going to tell you, if you want a good laugh, if you want a good laugh, you should go and read the comments uh, in episode 2088. Um, you know what? I'll read to you. One comment and one response. You can read the rest of the threads if you want a good laugh. But this guy, Joe, wrote me this following comment on yesterday's show. And I have no frame of reference for what he's talking about at this point, by the way. Dear Jack, I'm somewhat saddened that you ignored talking about the Land Institute's Prairie Festival in Salina, Kansas from September 22nd to September 24th. Their work on perennial crops would have been of interest to your permaculture followers. It saddens me that you would waste this opportunity to support Dr. Wes Jackson. Well, I have to say that at this point I had never heard of the Land Institute Prairie Festival in Salina, Kansas. I have spent some time in Salina, Kansas, and I really am not interested in going back. It's a pretty boring place. Uh, but yeah, I mean, sure. It, and Wes Jackson never heard of him. Probably a good guy, probably great organization, whatever, but... This just comes out of left field. My response to this was, you know, I wake up every morning and my first thought I have is, I really hope I don't do something that saddens or disappoints Joe. That's the main goal of my life, and my entire business is dedicated to fulfilling that mission alone. Seriously, I, I don't get the tone of your comment at all. How the hell did I ignore it? To ignore something, you have to first know about it. Perhaps you emailed me and think I have a folder called Joseph's Special Snowflake folder that gets top priority over my 9,000 other emails a week. 9,000 a week, by the way, is not an exaggeration. Seriously, WTF, are you acting out like this for? And this was odd because this guy is a person who's actually been around the show for quite a while. And he's, I've actually read quite a few of his emails and letters to editors and stuff like that. I don't know if something's wrong in the guy's life or what, but it did make me come up with today's show. This is a person acting out because they didn't get what they want. And, and, and the reason I bring this up, I, I don't share these things often, but you know when they're done publicly, there's no, like, there's no reason for me not to share this. This guy did this publicly, and he's done more, by the way, on my Facebook page, etc. But, but I'll tell you that I know at times you've probably seen me 
maybe tell someone to F off they really didn't need it. They weren't really that bad. It kind of get short-tempered with people and uh, kind of blast them. The reason that happens on occasion, this kind of shit right here, where someone feels entitled to something, like, I wanted this, and you didn't do it, so you're wrong, and you're a big doo-doo head, right? Like, this is something, I want you to understand, I deal with this three or four times a week. I deal with a person like this. Usually it's not a person that I've, I've known for a while, like like Joe here. But uh, it's it, it's an odd thing that people seem to believe they can get what they want from someone who they really have no it has no real obligation. And the song that I have for you is pretty damn old. It's by the Rolling Stones, and by now some of you are snapping to what it is. You can't always get what you want. But the interesting thing is, if you try, sometimes you just might find you can get what you need. I thought it'd be a great song to leave with you guys before I head out on vacation. I wish Joe well. I don't know if he's had some kind of event in his life or something like that, because it's out of character, and I, I really don't know what else to say about it, other than it gave a lot of people, when he threw his tantrum on Facebook, a pretty good laugh. Um, but you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, my friends, you just might find... You get what you need. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Yeah.